If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 7. Luke and chapter 7. We will be in verses 18 through 35 in our time together this morning. We start Luke in about uh, November, and uh, we're going to stay in Luke until July, and then for the month of July, we're going to do our annual Summer in Psalms, and then after July, we'll jump right back into Luke, all right? So that's the plan for right now, Lord willing. But today, we're going to look at 18 through 35. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Luke 7 and 18 through 35. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 7, starting verse 18. God's Word says, The disciples of John report all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one to come, who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your, your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. This is God's word and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Expectations. We all have them and we have them all the time about virtually everything. Yes, we have expect expectations about how our day will go every day when we wake up, everything we will do, expectations for the coming year, or for a trip, or for work. You even had expectations about today, right? When you woke up and you got dressed and you came and you expected me to be wearing yellow chucks and you are disappointed or you are thrilled, either one of those two, right? That I am not. Sometimes, we expect things and they go exactly as expected, for better or for worse. Sometimes we expect something and we're disappointed. Sometimes we expect something and it exceeds our expectations for the better. And since it's fresh in my mind, I think of this past week for my family and I. We knew we were going to Louisville, right, for my graduation. We expected, I've driven that road many times before, we expected what the trip there would be like. We expected how each day would go as they were scheduled, and we experienced all the different things that week, all the different things that happen when you have expectations. Some things happen just as we expected, some things happen that we didn't expect, and some things were better than we thought they would be. I expected, for example, to go to rehearsal on Thursday, and I knew how that would go. I've graduated from places before. Then I knew we would go to the president's palatial house for a reception, then I knew we would go to dinner after that. That was the schedule. That was the plan. All of that went as expected until on the way to dinner, Silas' car exploded. No, I'm kidding. It overheated. 
I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that it wouldn't make it back to where we were staying. (laughs) I didn't expect to push her car while wearing a suit. And I didn't expect that we would take an Uber at 9.30 at night in this foreign place just to get back to where we were staying. Nor to spend the morning of graduation waiting for a tow, nor did Sila expect to spend the morning trying to find a mechanic who would take the car before 2023, nor did I expect the eventual repair bill. Who does? In this case, expectations were, let's say, unmet in a bad way. But on Friday... I expected to go through graduation ceremony and knew basically what would occur. But in every way, my expectations were exceeded. And it was better and more enjoyable than I had previously thought, before, during, and after. So in that case, I had expectations, but they were exceeded. All of you could probably relate to much of what I've said so far, right? In some way, expectations are part of life, whether we spend a lot of time considering them or not. And for the most part, what we expect may be based in reality or past experiences, But what we're dealing with when we expect things is not reality. It's just what we picture or plan before the events happen. The truth is, much of what occurs lies outside of our control. But we do enjoy imagining that they do, so we set expectations. In our text this morning, we're dealing all with expectations. Expectations of who Jesus is and what he will do. Expectations of what the kingdom is like. And expectations of who is included in that kingdom. For John the Baptist, his expectations have not been met. Jesus is not what he thought the Messiah would be like. He had expectations and is somewhat disappointed and beginning to doubt. But it turns out Jesus is better than John or Israel or you or I could have ever hoped or dreamed or expected. And his kingdom is different than anything anyone could have expected or thought up. So in our time together this morning, let's consider three main things, and I'll just give them to you straight away. Simple enough. Number one, unexpected king. Unexpected king. Number two, unexpected kingdom. Unexpected kingdom. And number three, unexpected choice. Okay? So unexpected king, unexpected kingdom, and unexpected choice. So first, let's consider unexpected king. We'll consider this from verses 18 through 23. As we go, you'll notice this section is laid out into three subsections already for us. 18 through 23. So the scene opens in verse 18 with Luke telling us that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And we could rightly ask, why did these things need to be reported to John? And why couldn't he ask the question of verse 19 to Jesus himself? Well, if you remember from chapter 3, John is where? He's in a Herodian prison for calling out the Tetrarch for marrying his brother, his brother's wife, not his brother. John was willing, John was willing to call sin for what it is, right? Even if doing so was not politically, professionally, or personally expedient, and it was not. So since he was in prison, he needed things to be reported to him and to send his disciples to ask Jesus this question, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The question is essentially, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Okay. Are you the one who we've been expecting for hundreds of years or should we be looking for another? You might ask, why would John ask this? Well, it's because he has doubts, right? But why? Well, again, where is he? He's in prison and for what? For doing what was right. Isn't that true? He didn't expect that he would be a captive to the flunky of an evil oppressing empire as the forerunner of the Messiah. It's kind of like, I call Israel to repentance. I do what I'm supposed to do. I do what's right, even when it would cost me. And look what it's gotten me. But it's even more than that. Think again of what verse 18 says. The disciples of John did what? Reported these things to him. Okay, what things? Well, what came before that verse <laughs> in chapter 7? Jesus healing the servant of a centurion who also happens to work for the oppressing empire. And then Jesus touching a funeral beer, which everyone knows you don't do lest you become unclean. These are the things being reported to John. And what is Jesus' message so far? 
I mean, you look back at chapter 3, and what is John's message? Do you remember? John's message is repent, wrath is coming. The Messiah has laid the axe to the root and is ready to throw the fruitless into the fire with the winnowing fork that's already in his hand. That's John's message, which is the right message, yes? And it is what John expected, which is judgment on the evildoers as key part of what the Messiah will do. But it's a very different tone from the one Jesus has preached so far, isn't it? Jesus hasn't been preaching judgment except for the woes of chapter 6. Even in chapter 4, do you remember when he went to Nazareth and he preached from the, the prophecy of Isaiah, he left out, as we saw then, the verse on judgment. He didn't even read it. Now he, here he is, healing someone who works for the empire that the Messiah is supposed to overthrow and seemingly breaking ceremonial laws by bringing dead people back to life. So what's the deal? See, the style of Jesus' messianic mission did not match most of what people expected. That's the problem. They expected the Messiah to be a military-type leader who would bring pure judgment and immediately and would overthrow their oppressors through might and power and violence and would return Israel to full and final global prominence. And John seems to be thinking that Jesus' message and actions they don't have enough judgment in them. He seems to think that the Messiah's power should be thrown through power indeed, but a power of a certain kind. Why is Jesus doing favors for a Roman centurion when he should be smashing his teeth? You know, about 100 years after what we're reading here, there was a Jewish fellow named Simon bar Kokaba. And he led a revolt against Rome. And this actually led to the establishment of an independent Jewish state for a little while. Guess how he did this? Military might and violence. And people rallied around him. And many of his followers began to think he was the Messiah. They even called him King of the Jews. They called him King of the Jews. They printed money with his face on it. They read their Old Testaments assuming he was the one being prophesied about. You know, eventually Rome, you know what they did to him? They killed him, and he stayed dead. But people thought he was the Messiah, of course, until they killed him. And then they gave up on that idea. Because he did what they expected. He led through military might, and he sought to overthrow Rome. But Jesus wasn't like that, was he? Jesus will judge the unrighteous. He will vanquish the oppressor. He will pour out his wrath, but not yet. Do you see? He hasn't excessively talked of judgment and wrath because he has come, as John 3 says, not to condemn the world, but what? You guys know that verse. But that the world through him might be saved. He doesn't talk about wrath being poured out yet because it is he himself. Yes? It is he himself who will absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He will take their condemnation. He will do the unexpected. They expect him, you think about why he's such a stumbling block for them. They expect him to come with a sword to kill Rome. But what did he do instead? He plans to win through a way no one would expect it in a million years. He will allow Rome to kill him so that he might save the world. I mean, who wins like that? That's why the cross is an offense, right? But now, how does Jesus answer John's question? In this, I think this is fascinating. He didn't say anything, does he? He didn't say anything. <laughs> Instead, he heals many people of various diseases and plagues. He exercises demons by making them run wind sprints. No, I'm kidding. He exercises demons. Nobody got that? He gives sight to the blind. They're like, yeah, but it wasn't funny. And then after all this, he says to John's disciples, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Go tell him how you saw me give sight to the blind and how I made the lame walk and how I cleansed lepers and how the deaf can now hear and how I raised up the dead and how I preached good news to the poor and tell him that he will be blessed if he isn't offended by me. Joel Green says this, Jesus' inventory of salvific activity is not meant to limit but to amplify and demonstrate the nature of his mission. 
and to suggest the expansive scope of salvation. The obvious overlap of Jesus' inaugural sermon in Luke 4, 18 and 19, and his answer to John provides a powerful sanction for the integrity of his mission. He was doing what the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him to do. Jesus shows this. He shows that he is the one to come, but through his deeds. Jesus is showing that the new age, this is a key thing we need to get, the new age, the age of the kingdom, has broken through his person. Everything he does here is directly related to a prophecy about the end of the age and the coming kingdom and of the Messiah in Isaiah. All six claims of verse 22 have direct quotations from Isaiah. Every single one. So Jesus is showing John's disciples so they could go and report to him that he's the fulfillment of exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would be like and what he would do. It it isn't that John's expectations were wrong. It's that they were incomplete. They were short-sighted. He was more than John thought that he would be. John's view is too narrow. Let me give you some examples from Isaiah. In Isaiah 26, if you look at verse 22, you can see all these things happening. In Isaiah 26, we're told that the dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. In Isaiah 29, we're told in that day, the deaf shall hear, the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. In Isaiah 35, we're told that the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will be loosed to sing joy. In Isaiah 61, as we saw in chapter 4, we're told good news will be preached to the poor and liberty to the captives. And we could go on and on, but the point is this. Jesus is showing in a demonstration of a different kind of power that he has broken forth the new age. And this is a foretaste. What these people are experiencing, it's a foretaste of the world to come at the end of time where there is no blindness and there's no deafness or lameness, or poverty, or death. And what the people experience through him is a sample. It's a taste of his making things right and reversing the curse. William Barclay says this of this passage. He says, this is not the answer John expected. If Jesus was God's anointed one, John would have expected him to say, my armies are amassing. Caesarea, the headquarters of the Roman government, is about to fall. The sinners are being obliterated, and judgment has begun. He would have expected Jesus to say, the wrath of God is on the march. But Jesus said, the mercy of God is here. Let us remember that where pain is soothed and sorrow turned to joy, where suffering and death are vanquished, there is the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer was, go back and tell John that the love of God is here. John's disciples are to go back and report what they've seen and heard from Jesus And John will then see Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, but he's greater than even John could have ever expected. But then notice, Jesus offers a beatitude in verse 23 directed at John, okay? But it's applicable for all. This is the beatitude. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is telling John to not be scandalized by him. Not to stumble over Jesus and who he is and what he says and what he's doing. And if you remember, all the way back in chapter 2, you remember our friend Simeon at the temple? Predicted that Jesus would be the cause of the rise and fall of many. And Jesus is in fact fulfilling that prophecy, isn't he? But Jesus is exhorting John, don't make it to where I'm your fall. Your stumbling block. You must take me for who I am, and you will be blessed, for I am greater than you could ever dare hope. And me and the kingdom I bring are precisely what the prophets predicted, but better. Daryl Box says the key to this beatitude is its personal focus on Jesus. He is the issue, and those who will deal with what God is doing must deal with him. And I wonder, friend, I think this question stares us all in the face. Are you offended by Jesus? I wonder, do you stumble over his person or his words, his commands and his call? 
I mean, do you see his words to love neighbor and love enemies and do good to those who hurt you, to cease judgmentalism, to forgive freely, to deny self and cast them aside as irrelevant or optional or too strong? Do you allow his ethic to wreck your categories, demolish your political partisanship, and challenge how you live and see the world, how you relate and treat people, what you prioritize, what you care about, and what you live for? You understand that a temptation we all must recognize and actively battle against is our propensity to be scandalized by Jesus' otherworldly call. And instead of changing our ethic, this is the temptation that we'll always face. Instead of changing our ethic to fit his, to dismiss dismiss his difficult calls and make him in our own image. To make him into a Messiah we would expect or we'd be more comfortable with. David Platt addresses this temptation when he says, We're giving into the dangerous temptation to take Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we're more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you realize, he asked, what we're doing at this point? We're molding Jesus into our image. This is a temptation we must fight against. Friend, you realize that no matter what you can concoct in your mind about who Jesus ought to be, or who you'd prefer him to be, or who he would be if you were crafting him, will always and inevitably fall infinitely short of who he really is. He's better. He's greater. He is beyond your wildest expectations. And thus, our task, our task is to see who he really is as revealed in Scripture and adjust our lives, our hearts, our minds and our ethics accordingly by the power of the Holy Spirit and not the other way around. For John, Jesus was an unexpected king, but Jesus is shown, shows here, and will show that he is more glorious than John or you or me could ever dare hope. You believe that? His ways will always be better. And perhaps our discomfort with his costly call is a sign that his ways are better. Well, if Jesus is unexpected king and he brings with him the dawning of a new kingdom, then naturally his kingdom too is an unexpected one. And this takes us directly to point number two, unexpected kingdom. And for this, let's consider 24 through 30. Interestingly, while John had some doubts about Jesus, Jesus turns and extols John, doesn't he? He turns to the crowd, he extols John, and endorses and validates John's ministry. Jesus asks, do you see it? When you went out to the wilderness, what is it that you went to see? Did you go to see a reed swaying to and fro in the wind? Did you go to see someone dressed in fine clothing and living in a lap of luxury? No, you went to see a prophet. And that is exactly what you saw, but even more. So Jesus is showing them through familiar language, they would know this this picture, and absurd questions, right? That people didn't travel all the way out to the wilderness to see things they could readily see where they were, right? I mean, would one travel potentially hundreds of miles, right? We're talking about a time where people are walking or on donkeys, right? They couldn't get in their Ford Escort and drive over there, right? They couldn't, they travel potentially hundreds of miles to see a reed shaking in the wind. Like, That'd be like if you were taking a trip. You said, Vaughn, I'm taking a trip. And I said, where are you going? You said, I'm going to Texas. And I asked, why are you going to Texas? And you said, I want to see some trees. What do you think I'd say back to you? I'd say, save the travel time. Okay? 
save the gobs of gas money, walk out your front door, right? That would be my advice. <laughs> walk out your front door or, you know, drive from anywhere in Georgia to anywhere else in Georgia and you'll see trees, right? No need to go that far and waste time. The people didn't go all the way out of the wilderness to see a reed in the wind. They can see that anywhere. Similarly, says Jesus, if you went to see someone dressed in fine clothes, your expectations were not met. You guys know how John dressed, right? Camel hair and leather, right? Not in fine clothes of royalty. If you're expecting someone who was spineless and lacked conviction like a reed in the wind, someone who would get swayed by the changing winds, or somebody who was impressive in appearance and power, you'd be disappointed. But says Jesus, you saw something even better. But now consider something else about this picture Jesus offers, okay? If I were to tell you to pull a coin out of your pocket, what would you see on the coin? You would see symbols, right, and representations of the American kingdom, yes? You'd see American heroes like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or an eagle, or whatever. Now, if Jesus' audience were to pull out a coin, they would see something similar, symbols of the kingdom of Rome. And you know, a few years before Jesus began his public ministry, Herod had coins minted with symbols of his choosing. And do you know what he chose? A Galilean reed that would appear to be blowing in the wind, which symbolized the beauty and fertility of the area. Now this adds another layer, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, if you went out to the wilderness expecting what the worldly powers have to offer, if you expected someone like King Herod with his fine clothing and his hideous, shifting, changing, expedient ethics and his incredible political power, you would have been very disappointed. But if you went to go see a prophet, I tell you, you got more than you asked for, for John is the greatest of them all. Let me say that. If you went looking for a kingdom different than any that has existed, does exist, or will exist, well, then you got what you were bargained for. But if you went looking for a kingdom like all the others, you didn't get what you wanted. You should have just gone to Herod's palace for that. But Jesus takes it further, doesn't he? He continues to obliterate human expectations and priorities. He says, not only is John greater than Herod, not only is he a prophet, he's the greatest of all prophets, and he's the greatest of all people, apart from Jesus, of course, up to that point in history. Think of all your Old Testament heroes and the figures, right? Noah, John is greater. Abraham, John is greater. Isaac, John is greater. Moses, what? John is greater. Joshua, John is greater. David, John is greater. Elijah, Elisha, Solomon, John is greater than them all. I mean, what other prophet has prophecy that prophesies his coming? John says, John does, right? Jesus cites Malachi 3.1, doesn't he? What other prophet could say that? What other prophet could say the other prophets long for his arrival because it signaled the end of the age? But see, the key to John's greatness isn't even just that he was prophesied about. John's greatness hinges on Jesus' greatness. John is great only because Jesus is great. John is great only because of the time in which he serves, because he is a hinge point between the old world and the world to come through Jesus. John is the last of the prophets, but he has a distinct privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah. This is what makes him great. So John's greatness is not a matter of essence, it's a matter of function. Now check this out. You see in the citation in verse 27, how it says that the forerunner will prepare your way before you. Do you see that? You know, the Malachi passage, if you go look that up, it actually says prepare a way before me, not you. I'm talking about the Messiah. So why the change? If you write down, this is something worthy of writing down. It's because this is a combination between Scripture references. Malachi 3.1 and Exodus 23.20, where God promises the people in the wilderness that an angel, you remember if you were here with us during Exodus, that an angel will go before them into the promised land. So what are we making here? Jesus is saying that a new and better Exodus has arrived. John prepares the way from the wilderness. He bridges eras, but Jesus will lead those who belong to him into a truer and better promised land, like Yahweh led the people himself in Exodus. Even still, even as great as John is, 
What's Jesus' startling claim about those in the kingdom of Christ in verse 28? I tell you, among those born of women, John, none is greater than John. Yet what? Isn't this something? Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is better than he. Think about that. John is greater than Moses, who parted the Red Sea. And David, who was Israel's greatest king. And Solomon, who oversaw the temple being built. And Elijah, who raised the widow's son. And Elisha, who cured leprosy. And yet, you are greater than him. You are greater than him if you are least in the kingdom of Christ. Why? It's not because you're greater in essence. It's because you belong to the new era Jesus brings. You're part of a greater kingdom that transcends and exceeds all earthly kingdoms and all previous eras. And you stand on this side of Jesus' substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. John was the bridge between ages that he did not himself enjoy. Do you see? John merely prepared the way, but he did not experience the kingdom on earth the way that you do, because you are on this side of Jesus' atoning death in your place and his resurrection as first fruits of what you one day will enjoy, and his ascension as king over all things, and you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. You are more privileged than even the greatest man who wasn't Jesus, born of women up to this point in history. You. You are, friend, you are more privileged than any person in the Old Testament. Anyone. Go read your Old Testament. Pick somebody. You are greater if you are in his kingdom. Let's illustrate a few ways to help. I think of a a man I heard once who said that every night he would watch from his windows of his house, a lamplighter who would go along, this is when the the lamps were were lit on the streets by fire, along the streets, lighting the lamps, but the lamplighter himself was blind. He was bringing to others light which he himself would not see. John is like that. He's like that blind man. He's shining a light that he would not experience himself. Or Here's a different illustration. Imagine if the Associated Press's number one ranked college basketball or college football team played against even the worst NBA or NFL team. The college team, what? They get wrecked, right? They couldn't even begin to compete. They get destroyed. In the same way, says Daryl Bach, the least gifted person of our era has access to far greater benefits and experience than the most gifted person of the past era, of which John was the bridge. You know, I bet someone in here feels like the least in the kingdom. I bet some of you are self-depreciating to the point that you feel like you don't know enough, you don't do enough, you think of how often you fail, you think of how you aren't everything you could be, You think about your feeble attempts at obedience and how imperfect they are. You just feel like you're the least in the kingdom. If that's you, Jesus brings good news. You are greater than John the Baptist. And here's the unexpected nature of the kingdom. It's the least and the last who are the greatest. Who thinks like that? What other kingdom operates like that? Can you think of any kingdom or organization or anything else that functions like this? Where the least are at the top and the greatest are at the bottom. What do we expect? You know, our culture says the smart, the clever, the wealthy, the ones who have names, the one with good reputation, the ones who are self-made and impressive, those are the great ones. Isn't that true? Even in churches, which are supposed to be outposts and embassies, of this kingdom, sometimes given this ethic of the world that elevate people for their worldly stature and not their spiritual maturity. But the kingdom ethic speaks a better word than that. It says the ground is level in the church and the last are the first. Let me ask you this, okay? Do you want to be great? First of all, why, right? (laughs) Why do you want to be great? But second of all, we must then see That greatness in the kingdom of Christ is characterized by meekness, weakness, 
firmly outside the spotlight and with an other-directed focus. That's how to be great in the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson puts it like this, so often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses or John the Baptist simply because of his or her ability living on this side of the coming of the Messiah to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we really believe this truth, it will dissipate all cheap vine for position in this world and force us to recognize that our true significance lies simply in our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you might think, you ever think this? No one will ever notice your ordinary obedience. No one will see the sacrifices that you make in secret. And no one will ever know you have helped someone in need. And no one will ever praise you publicly for the faithfulness you pursue every day driven purely by your love for Christ and his beauty in response to the gospel. But I want you to hear me now. Jesus sees, and Jesus knows, and Jesus cares, and if you, in true humility, feel like you are the least in the kingdom that no one could possibly be on a lower rung, then take heart because you are greater than John. And in the unexpected upside-down kingdom of Christ, you're at the top. Isn't that something? Now forget the ethics of this world. Now cast aside the measurements of society. Throw away culture's love for power and prestige and impressiveness and embrace the unexpected king's unexpected kingdom and you will be greater than even John. And Luke proves the unexpected nature of the kingdom with this, you notice this parenthetical comment in verse 29? Who are the ones embracing the message? It's not the religiously pious like the Pharisees, not the well-to-do and powerful like Herod, but people at the bottom of the societal rung like tax collectors. And who benefited from Jesus' healings in 21 and 22? The outcasts, the marginalized, the unimpressive, the unclean, the outsider, people on the fringes. Why? Because that's who the kingdom is for. And because they're repentant. See, they saw that they were the problem, that their hearts were far from God, and so they embraced John's baptism of repentance. What the Pharisees do? Do you see what it says? They rejected it because in their estimation, in their self-righteousness, it was everyone else who was the problem. Not them in their hearts. They didn't think they needed repentance and forgiveness, so they were on the outside of the kingdom looking in. So it doesn't matter how great you think you are or how gifted, or how strong, or how competent. What matters is, are you in the kingdom of God? If you are, then you are privileged. And you must use that privilege to accomplish the works greater than John. You know what you were like? You know what we are like? We're like dung beetles. You like being compared to dung beetles? Dung beetles, they're small, right? They're unimpressive. They smell, and you look at them, and you might think they're the last in the animal kingdom, right? But do you know that they could pull 1,141 times their own body weight? That's like you pulling five times as much as an F-450 truck. But as unimpressive as they look, they have been endowed by the Creator with unexpected ability, haven't they? And as little and least as you may feel, which isn't a bad thing to feel like that, and as unimpressive as you feel, and as messed up as your past might be or your present for that matter, if you belong to Jesus, you are endowed with the Spirit of God inside you, and you are privileged indeed. Because like John, your greatness doesn't hinge on how great you are in essence, but how great Jesus is and your attachment to Him. You can thus now go forth and preach the gospel of Christ that Moses and David and John didn't even know in their time, but expected with great anticipation, and it has arrived and it blows away their expectations. And Jesus, of course, as the unexpected Messiah and king who brings an unexpected kingdom, confronted his original hearers the same way he confronts all of us today. 
a choice must be made. If he truly is the one who is to come, that means salvation is found in no one else but God's chosen Messiah. So every human has a choice to make, the kingdom of God's beloved son or the domain of darkness. And this leads us quickly, finally, thirdly, to our final point, unexpected choice. And this comes from verses 31 through 35. Unexpected choice. I want you to draw your attention. I want you to see if you see this. There are two kinds of children in these verses. Do you see them? There are the brats in the parable of 31 through 34, and there's wisdom's children in verse 35. That's our choice. Those are our choices. Which child would you be? Jesus says, what can we compare this generation to and what, what are they like? Then he gives a parable that Daryl Bach calls the parable of the brats. He says to the Jewish leaders, you guys are like kids who sit in the marketplace and they complain because no one will play their, by their rules. R.C. Sproul explains it well. He says, this is what the children did when the marketplace was empty and they did, had space to play. They would create games. Kids are great at inventing games, but sometimes they don't agree and they fuss among themselves. Parents, could you attest to this? They fuss among themselves as to what they should play. Jesus said, in effect, this is how the people were. They were like kids who play the flute saying, we're going to have a happy time of dancing. And some of the others say, we're not dancing. We don't want to play the flute game. Okay, let's play funeral. So they played the funeral dirge, but others refused to join in saying, no, no, we're not going to play the funeral. We're not going to mourn. This is the way children behave. That's what this generation of adults was like. They were childish. Jesus says, John came and he didn't eat bread and wine. He was very serious, right? Straight laced. He preached a message of judgment and repentance. He was like the child who sang a dirge and called for weeping. But the Pharisees didn't like it. They said, we don't like that tune. We don't want to play that game. And so they rationalized their rejecting John by claiming he had a demon. That's what Jesus is saying here. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came with a different style. He came eating and drinking. He was associated with people from all walks of life. He was full of infectious joy. He was like the child who played the flute and called for dancing and rejoicing. But the Pharisees, guess what? They don't like that either. They said, we don't like this song. We don't play the games like that either. So they rationalized they're rejecting Jesus by claiming Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. So either way, they did what? They complained. Jesus and John couldn't win with them because they didn't play the game the self-righteous wanted. They were like that kid. Remember that kid who brought the ball to play with? And so they thought they could make the rules. Remember that kid? <laughs> and those rules they made up happened to benefit them. And if anyone objected or they lost, what would they do? We know the phrase. They took their ball, and they went home, right? Y'all been around kids like that? How many of y'all were that kid? No matter what Jesus or John did, I know some of y'all were that kid. <laughs> no matter what Jesus or John did, no matter what manner of disposition they came with, many were going to reject them, and why? Because they didn't want to repent. Because they didn't want to hear of their sins. They didn't want to turn away from their deeds and to God. What they hated was the message. That's what they were mad at. And that's partly Jesus' point. John came preaching repentance, but he was a desert dweller who ate locusts and honey, and instead of coming to grips with their need for repentance, they attacked him as a person. Well, he must have a demon. <laughs> Jesus preached repentance to the poor and hung out with outcasts, said the kingdom was open to anyone who would come to him, and what did they say? Instead of wrestling with their biases and need of reconciliation with God, they attacked his person and said he was a drunk and a glutton. This is what people do when they're confronted with their sins. They react violently. They shoot messengers because it's easier than wrestling with their own hearts. I see this in ministry all the time. You preach Christ, call sin for what it is, call people to live to, to repent individual and corporately, insist on obedience to Scripture above all, and if some don't want to deal with the creeping things the Spirit reveals in their hearts, what do they do? They'll attack the message carrier. Why? 
because it's easier than humbly admitting shortcomings and blind spots and conviction and then forsaking favorite sins. Isn't that easier? Many in the generation in Jesus' time hate John and Jesus because they were telling them things they didn't want to hear. It wasn't really about Jesus and John, was it? It was the fact that their religious piety has not won them any favors with God because their heart was far from them. It was the fact that Jesus has confronted them with their alienation from God and their lack of love for neighbor, that their national identity would not save them, that no amount of deeds would save them, that they were desperately lost and in need of rescue, but it must come from outside themselves. It was the fact that God's plan was not what they expected and that he worked through messengers that did things the way they didn't like. They thus said, play our song or we don't want to play. And there's the choice. And it's unfortunately the choice that many will make because the second choice, to be wisdom's child, to accept God's message, means to admit one's desperate need of salvation. To admit that Jesus is the only one who could provide wholeness and to submit to him as king henceforth living for his kingdom. For many, that's too much to bear. Last year, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University published a study that they entitled Top 10 Most Seductive Unbiblical Ideas Embraced by Americans. Okay? Top 10 Most Seductive Unbiblical Ideas Embraced by Americans. According to this analysis, the top 10 most prevalent seductive unbiblical ideas embraced by the majority of Americans include that having faith matters more than what faith you have, the idea of karma is real, there is no absolute truth. Morality is subjective, up to each individual. People are basically good. Success is determined by happiness, comfort, goodness, or fulfilled p- potential, and that most people are not sinful. This is what most Americans believe. George Barna said of these results this, so many of these perspectives are about control. Whether we're taking charge of our destiny, our spirituality, Boundaries dictated by truth, moral behaviors, or wealth management strategies, Americans are largely driven by a need to have control of every aspect of their lives. Biblical Christianity threatens that self-interest by requiring us to deliver control of our lives to God. Barta said, it is clear from the research that most individuals, even a large majority of those who consider themselves to be Christian and who participate in Christian activities are unwilling to surrender the reins of their life to God whom they do not personally know, understand, or trust. I think he's right. I think like this generation in Jesus' time, most people do not want to play by the tune that God has sent because they want to play by their own tune and by their own rules. And they will sing whatever tune they can, they can to defend their rejection of God's messenger. Friend, don't let that be said of you. Don't be the child pictured in the parable of the brats rejecting God's way, Jesus' way, the Spirit's way because you refuse to admit your need for God and your inability and because you so desperately want to retain control of your life. And Charles Spurgeon, he preached on just verse 34 and he said this, the Lord Jesus Christ has put in his window a message of this kind. Any sinner of any sort who desires to be saved, let him come to me. Now do not merely stand at the window and read it, but come inside, my poor brother. Come inside, my sister. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. And that same invitation is open to you if you do not know Christ. Or if you do know him and you can't help, but try to retain control of your life. Or you are scandalized by his commands and resisting his call of an obedient life. Let go of the reins. Hand them over, friend. Kyle Eidelman illustrates it like this. He says, there's a legal document called a quit claim deed. It was used when a person is signed over all rights to property or possession that they once had a share in. When they sign a, a quit claim deed, they are giving up whatever claim they once had. They're surrendering all their rights. When Jesus invites us to follow, there's not a lot of paperwork involved, but he's looking for some kind of a quick claim deed. When you decide to follow him, you are signing over your house, 
your car, your bank accounts, your career, your marriage, your children, your future, and anything else that you once had claim to. You have no more rights and nothing can be withheld. You deny yourself and sign a quick claim deed on your life. That's the right choice. The kind of children we see in verse 35. To be a child of wisdom, which is to say, be a child of God and embrace his message and his messenger. Embrace the unexpected king and you will even now be in his kingdom, living for the age to come. And you know something? If you do, you should know life will not always go the way you expect. John was obedient as could be. (laughs) And he sat in prison for doing the right thing. Jesus was and is God in flesh, living a perfect life, teaching and obeying the wisdom of God, loving people and eventually dying for their rescue. Yet how was he treated? Even here. But says Jesus, you and your deeds... For the unexpected king and unexpected kingdom will eventually be justified and you will be vindicated. Your life will be shown to have been wise if you follow this king, if you embrace his life, joining in on his kingdom mission, come whatever may. Following the Messiah who is different to what we imagine is always demanding, but this is the only way to the kingdom of God and this is the life in the wisdom of God. So you have a choice today. Resist God's way of salvation so you can play your own tune or embrace God's unexpected, beautiful, glorious, loving, gracious, powerful king and thus join in his kingdom ways and purposes, living for a new age, pointing people the way of life and wholeness as we give just a taste of the glorious future when this king brings the kingdom in its fullness. There's only one wise choice. Make it today for your good and God's glory.